This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, December the 18th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! I'm back. Thank you to everybody who bailed me out last week while I was very, very sick. I up the rest of the week. I know I created a little bit of chaos behind the scenes. So thank you for uh, bearing with us. And thank you for bearing with me because I'm uh, not quite all the way to 100% just yet. I was saying this morning, I feel like $850,000. Not quite back to the uh, milli, but at the very least, a quality two-bedroom condo in Toronto. Coming up on the show today, it's been slightly over 100 days since Toronto's new mayor took office. Mayor Olivia Chow reflects on some of the city's biggest issues, including housing and transit. And how much can climate change impact national security? Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will discuss the latest research into wildfire mitigation and a CSIS report. What did Canada's spy agency have to say about climate change? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next two hours on the show, but the show starts with the top story of the day, and it's all about your money. New research shows one in four Canadians are extremely concerned about having enough income to cover their basic needs. John Kennedy takes a closer look. The Salvation Army released the data today as a part of their annual report examining Canadians' attitudes and experiences with poverty and related socioeconomic issues. Among single parents, closer than half are reporting extreme concern about meeting their basic needs at 40%. The research by Edelman Data and Intelligence suggests one in five Canadians are now eating less so their children or other family members can eat, and one in five have also skipped or reduced the size of at least one meal in the last year because they couldn't afford groceries. Those numbers are jumping up again to nearly half for single parents. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And just a reminder, uh, there was an opportunity for us to speak to the Salvation Army on the show last Friday. Alex Smythe did that. You can find that interview on the podcast. Just search for now with Dave Brown on your favorite podcasting platform. Speaking of your money, there's some sound to play from some powerful people reflecting on economic conditions. Canada's finance ministers met in Toronto last Friday. Federal Finance Minister Krisha Freeland reflected on some of the conversations. We heard from the Governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, and discussed the economic outlook, including inflation and interest rates for Canada and the world. Inflation is down, but we all know that interest rates are a real challenge for millions of Canadians, so it was important for us to speak about the economic outlook today. Okay, speaking of interest rates, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem looked ahead to 2024. Looking ahead, I expect 2024 to be a year of transition. The effects of past interest rate increases will continue to work through the economy, restraining spending and limiting growth and employment. Unfortunately, 
This is what's needed to take the remaining steam out of inflation. Here's what Macklem had to say about cutting interest rates. When it's clear that inflation is on a sustained downward track, we can begin discussing lowering our policy interest rate. We don't need to wait until inflation is all the way back to the 2% target to consider easing policy, but it does need to be clearly headed to 2%. This Friday's news panel will be a year in review. You better believe I'll be talking monetary policy and the man-made, here's some quotation marks, recession. There are some updates to share about salmonella outbreaks in various food products. Six people have now died in a salmonella outbreak linked to Malachita and Rudy brand cantaloupes in Canada. Lisa Laporte has the story. Canada's public health agency is reporting one more death linked to the outbreak, saying 153 related cases have been confirmed, with more under investigation. The agency says there have now been 103 confirmed cases in Quebec, 20 in Ontario, 17 in BC, 4 in Nova Scotia, 3 in Alberta, and 2 each in New Brunswick, PEI, and Newfoundland and Labrador. Consumers are being warned not to buy, eat, or sell Malachita or Rudy brand cantaloupe, noting any brands of the fruit that can't be verified should be thrown out. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Now this next story is south of the border, but I wanted to bring it to your attention just in case, you know, it's a big travel week. Several Quaker Oats products have also been recalled due to salmonella. Jackie Quinn has that side of the story. The recall covers some three dozen Quaker Oats granola cereals, snack mixes, and chewy bars, including those with chocolate chips, peanut butter chocolate chips, less sugar chocolate chip, dark chocolate chunk, oatmeal raisin, and other flavors. Most have a best by date of August 2nd, 24 or earlier. The company says salmonella poisoning can lead to serious, even deadly infections in those with weakened immune systems systems, the very young and the very old. You can check the website QuakerGranolaRecall.com for more details. I'm Jackie Quinn. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked, what is your favorite format to read books? 32% of you said audiobook, 18% of you said digital, 50% of you said printed, and 0% of you said other. Over on Facebook, JR writes in at Accessible Media Inc., printed, because then I can use my optical character recognition technology to read the book. So technically, it is audio, but I turn that print into audio at home, a little DIY by a JR. John writes in, printed, nothing compares to a book that looks like the journey you, you took as you read it. And Leanne writes in, I prefer printed, but digital is so much easier and portable. Y'all know where I land on this one. I love reading books on my phone or tablet specifically for ease of big fonts, easy to turn the page, and so darn portable. Over to today's Daily Poll. I am finally in earnest ready to talk about the holidays, even acknowledging that Hanukkah ended last week. But I'm really ready now. One week till Christmas, let's go. Let's have earnest conversations about the holidays. And I want to know, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, how far along are you in your holiday shopping? Your options. Done. Almost done. 
just started or have not started. The ongoing joke and the stereotype of the middle-aged man that I am is that I am a last-minute shopper. I've told you before, there's a sweet spot on December the 23rd, typically in the afternoon, where you can sneak in a lot of last-minute shopping and the stores aren't cuckoo bananas. I'm a new man. I'm a new man. Yesterday, painting the picture for you, I did all my Christmas shopping online while sitting on the john. What a modern world that we live in. Now, I'm not quite all the way done. I'm almost done. One or two more gifts to pick up here to like really finish the job. But I am so close to done that it almost feels disingenuous to say almost done. I'm ahead of the game. And another pro tip here, I'm going to Ottawa for Christmas to be with my family. Instead of having to schlep all the packages and presents with me, they've all been shipped directly to my parents' house where I will wrap them on the weekend. Feeling pretty good about myself, Amanda Shikarchi. Feeling pretty darn good. Yeah, I love that. So even though Hanukkah just happened, I'm also going to say almost done because my sister's birthday is like the day before New Year's. So I still need to get her a birthday gift. Um, but holiday shopping is definitely fun. Um, it's interesting doing it blind, especially like when you're in a store and you need someone to kind of describe the different items so you can kind of figure out if it, okay, is that what I'm looking for? But it's definitely a fun time of the year. Now, see, that's a good thought, right? Because on, a, on any given day, the experience as a blind person in a retail store can be a mixed bag. You add the chaos of the holiday shopping season, there's some pushing and shoving, and you aren't exactly the uh, biggest presence in a store, Amanda. Yeah, exactly. Boxing Day, those Ooh. sales are like, you know, I like to go to see what's on sale, but then the minute I step in the store, I'm like... Oh, my God, this is way too chaotic for me. <laughs> All right, so there's there's Amanda saying almost done. Even though Hanukkah was last week, still a few people in her life to buy some gifts for. Elizabeth Moeller, you strike me as someone who does not procrastinate. I bet you were done months ago. You know what? I There's a, a fair at my church, a craft fair on November 11th, and I do almost all of my shopping there. So I would say almost done. The only thing that I have left to do is actually get the stuff delivered. I've ordered everything online, but I keep seeing those little notes from Amazon saying delayed. It will now be here in two days instead oh, of one day. Oh, so I don't like that. That's yeah. It's not, it's quite annoying. There are things as much as I love shopping online where I, I can't tell from the picture exactly what it is. So I want to go kind of feel and touch in person. So that's where I like sort of doing a couple of those things um, in person, but I try to do that on like that that day of our, our our local craft fair and then I'm supporting local businesses and local artisans. Um, so I'm going to say done, but not delivered. So I don't know if that puts me in the almost done or done, but it's, it's I, I will feel like it's done when it is in my house, in my hands, in my possession. Well, you did your part. At the very at the very least, you've hit click, you've hit purchase, you've hit I've buy. Hit you, you, yes. like, you, you've, you've done what you had to do. Elizabeth, I'm going to ask Marco Pasqua this question in about uh, 20 minutes. How are you at rapping? How's your rapping game? <gasps> Oh, you know what? I am I am absolutely brilliant because I buy beautiful gift bags and beautiful colored tissue paper and I put the gift in the bottom and the tissue paper on the top and I do a little crinkle crinkle and make it look pretty and I hand it to the person. Now so that I is I effective. think 
<laughs> my gift bag game though is real because I buy them made by a local artisan in our community. So I, I'm 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 all for the gift bags. Look at Elizabeth, the role model here, buying local crafts, <laughs> buying local gift bags. Amanda, how's your wrapping game? And no, I'm not talking about freestyling like Drake. <laughs> No, I think it's, I usually would get my sister to do it because like my sisters are really, really good at that type of stuff. Like they'll make the wrapping look pretty. So I'm like, you know what, if, if I ask them for help, I just want my gifts to go, to look good. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll just go for the extra help. <laughs> yeah. My niece is uh, currently seven years old and already way better at rapping than I am. Uh, the <laughs> ongoing joke in the family is that uh, if it looks like a toddler wrapped it, odds are Dave was the one who did the wrapping Aww. at accessible media on Twitter at accessible media Inc on Facebook. That's where you can vote on the poll. You can also chime in via email feedback at AMI.ca feedback at AMI.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a ring-a-ding-ding. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Canada's spy agency has released a report about how climate change can intersect with national security. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will discuss that research. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming in beautiful audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There are a few new reports that are exploring the intersection of climate change and personal safety. One of them is explicitly about climate change and national security. I know, pretty heady for a Monday morning. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig can offer up a little bit more context. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, like I said, a little bit heady on a Monday morning, and considering that both of you, both of us, are coming off illness right here, we'll see if we can put this together. We'll see if we can cobble yes. our brains together on this one. <laughs> but generally speaking, and uh, worth noting that if we can't do this properly, my good thing, my colleague Jim Bronskill has a nice, clear article for everyone to look oh, at. Oh my gosh, we're not making a whole lot of sense. <laughs> J Jim is elite at doing stuff like this. Like he is, he's literally one of the top journalists in the country on CSIS and foreign security matters. Yeah, so, really, yes. really, really good. Okay, Michelle. Generally speaking, what did CSIS have to say about that, that relationship between climate and national security? So earlier this year, they released a report saying that there was an explicit connection between the two and that climate change was going to pose a number of security risks. What it didn't offer was a whole lot of detail as to how, and that, of course, is what a lot of us would go to how does this work? Why, why would this be a problem? Those reasons came out this week, and they're a bit more... They're not incredibly detailed, but they are still quite interesting. It talks about Canada being at risk from foreign actors. Canada is considered in this context a climate leader, and it's, it, it discusses risks in terms of being posed by disruptors or people who would want to sort of compete with Canada's agenda on that front. So it talks about Canada being at risk from disruptors on energy security, say if uh, foreign parts makers for things like solar um, excuse me, for solar machines and whatnot, we can't, we can't obtain parts for what they need there. Uh, 
or for foreign actors who might want to come after Canada's own energy supplies or target our own research into energy materials. Um, Canada is, of course, another another big area of risk is Canada being a presence for critical minerals, which everyone's going to be coming mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. in the next little while as they as they shift towards EV expansion, Canada itself included. So that poses a risk in and of itself. Um, there, uh, there, there was discussion about Arctic sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Arctic sovereignty. I truly yeah. can talk. I promise. Tongue, tongue, yeah. tongue twister when you haven't been able to breathe properly in a week. Yeah, the, 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 forget, the, do forgive me, but no, yeah, that no. one's that's. <laughs> The, the Arctic sovereignty side of it is really interesting, Michelle, because like, I, I think things like scarcity of resources, okay, natural water supplies, natural resources, that's going to be something that's going to naturally come to mind as a matter of demand. What are you doing to protect scarce natural resources? But things like Arctic sovereignty in a changing climate, I don't think that people have necessarily pinned climate and national security in that region so explicitly until I read this report. Yeah, probably not. Arctic sovereignty is one of those weird ones that comes up now and again. It, it sort of sort of cycles in and out of political favor. You might recall the Harper government was pretty keen on asserting Canada's Arctic sovereignty and claims to some of those northern tracts of land. Um, but in this case, the, the what CSIS outlines is that as infrastructure changes, as the permafrost melts, um, and and things become more accessible to a broader number of countries, you're going to have more players trying to stake claims in some of the areas where Canada has traditionally had things things more or less to themselves. Right, yeah. Um, so that's the way in which the Arctic sovereignty threat would play out as CISA sees it. Yeah, so again, Jim Bronskill did a killer job on this. We can only do so well this morning, but I think that's a nice little entree point into thinking about national security and climate, as opposed to sort of individualistic security, which is what this next story is going to be about, mm -hmm. rather rather than simply thinking about uh, that, thinking about the bigger picture. Really, really cool. Really, really, really cool. I mean, frightening, but cool, uh, because that's the world that we live in. Yeah. Frightening, but cool. Uh, Michelle, yep. the, the, the next report is a bit more of the micro level. It, it falls a little bit more into the personal safety side of things, but it does talk about standards. And this is in regard to wildfire mitigation. Maybe some of this info isn't necessarily groundbreaking, but what are some of the recommendations on this wildfire mitigation? Yeah, you weren't kidding when you talk about the, the reports being aimed at wildly different audiences. This one is, in fact, for sure, targeting homeowners and, and, and communities at the very grassroots level. It provides infographics with guidance that individuals can take. So literally the opposite of a CSIS briefing in this sense. Um, the steps they're calling for all have to do with fire mitigation. And like you said, some of it probably won't sound groundbreaking when set out. You know, for individual homeowners, they're advising storing wood away from your building, not having shrubs near your foundations, keeping tree branches a certain distance away. Um, but for communities, that's where it starts to get a little bit more into standards types of issues by talking about, for instance, buffer zones and, and incorporating bigger buffer zones so that fires wouldn't spread from one building to another quite as easily and not wreak as much damage if they do strike. Um, but at the homeowner level, too, I suppose, is where it starts talking about you, you could start incorporating you know, anti-fire-resistant roofing materials into your home if you have chances to do that. All of these things, though, flag the fact that there are no real standards in place for incorporating such materials, for having fire mitigation as woven into community fabrics and building design. 
And that is something else that they're additionally sort of calling for as well, while talking about the actions that people can take right now. Yeah, not not to open up the can of worms that is the rebuilding of Lytton, British Columbia. Uh, it's, it's proving to be a huge local nightmare right now since the wildfire flattened that community a couple of years ago. But that was one of the standards that was being put in place in the rebuilding of Lytton, which is to say a lot of the buildings that are going up, they're asking them and they're demanding the use, and when I say they, I mean the federal government, of fire-resistant mm -hmm. materials. And, 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 the, and these are the kind of conversations that need to be had in the broader conversation of climate. I know Mike, Joita, and Alex had a pretty good conversation on Friday about COP28, about, COP about the, UN climate, uh, the UN Climate Convention, and some of these recommendations about transitioning away from fossil fuels and global temperatures. But in the meantime, you can't just put your head in the ground. You've got to talk about mitigation. You've got to talk about the reality that climate change, as it currently stands, is going to continue to stand. Well, exactly. And and this is where it comes down to the fact that, no, you can't just address these issues through individual solutions. There have to be some systemic ones built in as well. And this is where standards and building codes and all these things that sound very arcane individually become important quite collectively to, to, to try and make sure that some of these fire mitigation strategies are adopted automatically and as a matter of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Michelle, one more topic here, and this is going over to the world of politics. Kind of, sort of. Manitoba's progressive conservatives are going to pick a new leader in the nearish future. Mm -hmm. The party is at least considering using online voting in that process. Why? Well, uh, it is indirectly because of the last leadership contest. Yeah. Um, that that one was actually mired in, in controversy. Um there were there were lots of issues with people reporting that they didn't get their ballots and they couldn't participate in the vote until late and there were refusals to extend voting deadlines. The uh, the race was ultimately won by Heather Stephenson, who was premier of the province for a while, but it was not a huge margin of victory. And the woman that she defeated, Shelley Glover, actually took her to court over this, um, asserting there were irregularities in the voting process. Now, the court situation did not validate Shelley Glover's claims. They said there were no irregularities. Um, but these changes that are being contemplated right now are a result of that process. They're saying that there, there was no real way to deal with an uptick in party memberships that were surging later in the, in the leadership race. And people are now saying that maybe online voting would be a way to accommodate that. And so you don't have to deal with a, a last minute rush on mail-in ballots. So that's, this is one of the changes that's being contemplated. Another one is a, is a more uh, in the weeds kind of change to do with how votes are allocated with it when choosing a new leader. Um, but those are the two big ticketed items and the, the online voting one, of course, was interesting to watch for all of us who have interest in, in online mm -hmm. voting being adopted anywhere in any context. And we don't have all that long to wait for this one. The, the party is going to have a special meeting on January 13th, and that's where these things will be voted on. And if adopted, online voting will be in play during the next leadership selection. you got to have an in-person vote to talk about online voting. I, I appreciate some irony there. But yeah, <laughs> Michelle, this, these are just great it's examples. Yeah. These are just great examples of sort of the dipping in the toes of the water of online voting. There are municipalities all over the country who have started messing around with online voting or experimenting Absolutely. with online voting when it comes to their municipal and city mm -hmm. elections with, with varying levels of success. But overall, it's been quite good. Uh, 
whether or not it's improved uh, vote counts is an entirely different conversation. But this is sort of that next trickle up, right? You're going to start seeing it yep, popping exactly. up in the political sphere that maybe are a little bit lower stakes than a federal election or a provincial election. But it does feel like the tide is moving on this one, which I suppose isn't all the way surprising. But it's these little experiments that will eventually cause a critical mass for major movement on online voting. Exactly. We have not really seen online voting breach the provincial or federal sphere very much. And, and this is the a sort of dipping a toe in in that way on the provincial level. Not everywhere. I mean, we just saw a big uh, leadership convention for a provincial party in Ontario and online voting was no part of the conversation there. But someone's got to start. So we'll see what Manitoba decides to do. Yeah, very Manitoba cool. Manitoba Conservatives is what we're stating. Yeah. Only the Manitoba Conservatives. Yeah, just the progressive Conservatives in this leadership race uh, individually. Hey, That's Michelle, right. always great chatting with you. Looking forward to the last news panel of the year on Friday. Uh, get ready for an wow. email from me later today, a long email from me later today, where uh, you, Joey, and I will get the thread going in regards to uh, what stories will actually make it into our year in review <laughs> news panel. Standing by. Yes, standing yeah, exactly. On uh, <laughs> uh, With bated breath, Michelle McQuig is standing by. Uh, Michelle, thank you for this. No, my pleasure. Take care, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, what are some ways you can make the holidays more inclusive and accessible? Marco Pasqua will offer some tips and reflects on his preparations for the holiday season. The countdown to Christmas is on. Seven days away. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Let's officially get into the holiday spirit. I have been fighting it for the better part of eight weeks. You've heard and witnessed that on the airwaves. But now let's embrace it. I've got all kinds of holiday questions to pepper folks with. Let's start with Marco Pasqua. Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hey, good morning, Marco. Good morning, Dave. Marco, let's start with something very sincere. It's been super cool watching you become a new parent over the last few years. You've been talking about it a little bit on the air. What's it like experiencing the holidays through your daughter? Well, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, uh, being prepared for the holidays. Uh, admittedly, we just got our holiday decorations up yesterday. As you know, I was out of the country for the past two weeks. Uh, so we really tried to stretch this one out where we didn't get the decorations up. But we officially have the Christmas tree up uh, as of uh, yesterday. Uh, and just watching Stella get involved with the decorations and get so excited to put certain things up on the tree. We have a tradition that whenever we travel or go on vacations, we get a, a special Christmas bauble um, from whatever location that we're in. So we have some from New York, Aruba, uh, Curacao, some of the other Caribbean islands. And it's a great way for us to review and talk as a family about the memories that we've created throughout the year um, by looking at those ornaments as we put them up on the tree. And so just to see her at two and a half, almost three, 
um, get so excited and jumping up and down while we're playing Christmas music in the background, as cheesy and as hallmark as it might sound. Um, it's so cool to get that vigor and get that joy again. It reminds me of my childhood for sure. It's it's a renewed spirit. We went through that with my niece uh, big time over the last couple of years, and it's really it's really quite an amazing thing. Marco, you mentioned that it was a bit of a procrastination getting the decorations up. What about when it comes to shopping for the holidays? Are you uh, are you uh, the, the standard average? stereotypical male who does his shopping at a gas station on the 24th? Well, I mean, just clicking a few buttons on Amazon and other websites count. I mean, <laughs> that's, I, I don't that's what know. I did. Yes, that's what I did yesterday. Right, right. And with one day delivery, it's great. Uh, but no, honestly, um, I like to create memories throughout the year. So really, it's all about for me about experiential things. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents did this thing where it was really cool. One core gift would already be unwrapped and kind of unveiled as we would come out on Christmas morning as like a huge kind of jaw dropper or surprise. And so these are the kind of practical things we want to do with our daughter. We want to um, have her have toys that are made of wood and things like this. So some of those types of things may take a bit more planning planning to, to prepare or to buy in advance or to create and that kind of thing. And that's totally fine. And I do think that you should have some thought behind the things you're doing, regardless of how long you need to procrastinate, is to make sure that those gifts, regardless of who they're for, are really tailored to that individual. And it doesn't just feel like you called it in. Some people love the gift cards. I can't remember who I was talking to the other day that just said, no, 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 give me all the gift cards so that I can buy things for myself. But I like to put a little bit more of that personal touch. And sometimes that will impact how much I procrastinate or not, if that's an answer. Forget a, forget a gift card. Just slip, slip some cash in somebody's hand and be like, here you go. Here's there a little go. cash. Enjoy. Uh, although it's no, tough times, Dave. We all, we all need it. Yeah, yeah although, although no one knows what to do with cash anymore and some places aren't taking it. But that's a different conversation for a different segment. Totally. Uh, Marco, you mentioned some of the gifts uh, in your family tradition are already unwrapped on Christmas morning. How are you at wrapping presents? And I'll confess here, I'm real bad. I'm, I'm like a toddler. Uh, yeah, so I'm the I'm the wrapped uh, by no donation kind of guy. I'll go to all of the shopping centers and say, what can I give you by donation so that you wrap the gifts for me? Being a guy with CP and having my right hand and arm impacted by the dexterity of having CP, it means that if you get a wrapping from me, it looks like a rock that has sunk to the bottom of the ocean, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing if you're into unique designs. But if you <laughs> want something that looks tailored and very nice and sort of picturesque for a magazine, then I have to fully admit I am going to those customer service desks at the shopping centers and saying, what can I donate so that you wrap it up and make it look so pretty for me? What about yourself? Are you, you're just as bad as that? I am, I am <laughs> probably, I'm probably, and I, I can't blame, I can't blame CP. I can't blame my legal blindness disability as why I'm a bad rapper. I'm just, I'm just not good at arts and crafts. I almost failed kindergarten arts because of uh, my level oh, of my artistic fortitude. So not really, not really my game. I love what you mentioned there though, about rapping by donation. I know in pre-pandemic times, the CNIB would be out at malls all across the country raising money sure. and taking donations for the sake of wrapping gifts. I don't know where that stands in the uh, sort of uh, post-pandemic times, but yeah, I know, I know a lot of charities across the country get involved in that, which is a really, really, really great idea. And frankly, uh, there are a lot of these online services that will actually give you the opportunity to have the gift wrapped for you even when you buy yes. it, which is super cool as well. 
you can never necessarily vet the kind of paper and things that they're going to use in that regard. But I agree with you. If you can support a local charity or something that is close to your heart, absolutely support those organizations. You're killing two birds with one stone uh, by being able to support an organization that you love and also get a wrapping that isn't going to horrify people when they see it. <laughs> you know, Mark, Marco, that was us sort of applying a little bit of a disability lens to the notion of wrapping around the holidays. Yes. If you put on your consulting hat, what are, what are some other suggestions you might have in terms of making a Christmas and the holidays? is a little bit more inclusive and accessible. Oh my goodness, pre-planning where your venue is going to be and understanding who are the people you're expecting to be at the venue. Um, there's nothing worse than just saying, oh, you know, I called ahead and they made sure that there was uh, no stairs and then you get there and there are stairs to get up to a special area where you're doing karaoke or things like this. And then as a segue there, making sure that the activities that you're doing are actually accessible and inclusive to everybody that's being involved. Like, listen, I'm not expecting everybody to have the singing chops of Mariah Carey's all I want for Christmas. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, making sure that the activity makes somebody truly feel included and welcome in the event, dependent on any kind of disability or, or challenges that they may have is so important because the last thing that you want to do is feel shuttered out of the activities that your friends and family members are doing simply because of a lack of thought went into the preparation of those events. So really pre-planning, uh, you know, making your phone calls ahead to any venues that you might be going to, uh, checking for things like sound sensitivities, oh. food allergies. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you have a story there with the with the sound sensitivities. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of loud, crowded rooms. And I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've been to a Christmas party where I'm like, did we really think we could get 75 people in here and still blast the music right. as loud as it's being blasted and expect anybody to actually have a good time? I, 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 think, yeah. that, I think that sound sensitivity is probably a broader, like, cultural conversation about this, this need and desire for places to be overly loud. But I think if you are organizing a party, you should be, like, double and triple conscious of of how much control are we going to have to make it so people can actually have a nice conversation in this room? Oh, let me tell you, uh, and I know we're going to get to this a little bit later, but the cruise I just went on, my, my wife and I loved being able to see the band that was live on the cruise ship, but literally the decibels of sound were so loud that I couldn't even talk to her almost between sets because people had already adjusted their voices to talking so loud because the speakers were cranked up to, you know, 11, right? And yeah. so I just, it's it was insane. And to think about that, especially when my wife has central audio processing disorder. So when she's in a loud and busy environment, it presents like a hearing challenge where if I'm talking to her directly, she can't understand a word that I'm saying. So being conscientious of those things and how it may impact people based on the environment, I think is so important. I've got one more, and this is from the very personal file in regards to cards. If you know someone in your life is legally blind, please write in big block letters on the card so it's actually legible. <laughs> or if the person in your life uses Braille, see if you can get some Braille printing on, on the package yes. or present for them. Just be cognizant of how someone actually reads and consumes like that. It, it might just I make their that. Christmas morning uh, a, a little bit easier. Uh, and that's even a direct shout that. out to my family who like have known me for 40 years now <laughs> and still can't quite get that one right. <laughs> and you love them so much, Dave. I love, okay. I love my family dearly and I cannot wait to spend six days uh, with my parents uh, in a couple of days here. Uh, Marco, let's uh, be real quick here on the food front. Holiday grub sure. of choice, whether it's something from the table or something sweet. 
uh, mashed potatoes everywhere. You know, oh. like honestly, people say that it's all about Thanksgiving for mashed potatoes. For me, mashed potatoes with buttery butter. The more butter, the better. I don't know if I'm going to give myself a tongue twister early in the morning here, but <laughs> I absolutely love creamy mashed potatoes. And so that's it. And as far as sweets, anything that my mom is baking, like my mom makes the greatest pies ever. My favorite is banana cream pie, but she also does a killer apple pie. So those are my two um, on the savory and sweet. What about yourself? I got a big shout out here for uh, shortbread cookies. Love me some shortbread yes. cookies. Uh, community reporter Dorothy McNaughton in Sault Ste. Marie sent uh, the gang some cookies and Christmas sweets last year, and I didn't realize there was shortbread at the bottom of the bucket, Ooh. and I still live in regret for not uh, shoving a bunch of those in my face because shortbread oh cookies <laughs> are, are one of my absolute faves. Okay, Marco, you made a couple allusions to this. You did something really, really smart. A pre-holiday getaway with the family. What did you do? How was it? It was amazing. I was away from about November 30th uh, until about two days ago, uh, and we went to the Caribbean and the Bahamas uh, by, by cruise. Now, you've heard me talking about cruising and accessibility travel um, in the past, Dave, and I got to say, accessible cruising is probably the way to go for at least me. Um, getting an accessible cabin on the cruise ship is ideal. Being able to have a balcony where you can overlook the ocean, really kind of clear your mind. It was incredible. Taking my daughter for the first time on a cruise was awesome again to see through her eyes the the marvel that she was experiencing going on the water slides that are available on the cruise ship we had a great time we went to aruba curacao um uh some of the um islands in the bahamas um and i feel super well rested and then i get to come way away from that into the chaos that is christmas in canada and i actually love it i was missing the cooler temperatures we had a bit of a different temperature in the bahamas when we had a tropical storm and that's one of the things you got to be aware of when you go to the uh, hotter climates at this time of year, you are going to experience some of the negative sides of weather, not just the positive side. So that's why you're not seeing me with such a golden glow at the moment. Um, but I had an amazing, amazing time. And I would highly recommend it to anybody because they deck out those ships with all of the holiday decorations you can imagine. And not just Christmas, might I add. Um, Hanukkah as well, as well as all the other holiday traditions were well in display across the ship. So they were being super inclusive of anybody and anything that they may be celebrating these holidays. And just to be able to take some of those picturesque moments of a Christmas tree, I'm, I'm telling you, man, a Christmas tree in Aruba is one of the weirdest <laughs> things you could ever imagine because they don't grow evergreens. So why are they obsessing over North America trees? I just don't get it. It must be Hallmark. It must be commercialization. But either way, uh, seeing that in palm, palm trees with red skirts is also an image to see. So uh, or to at least feel and touch and experience. I got to tell you, <laughs> the tentacles of Christmas are. Rome far. Hey, Marco, glad you got home safe back to British Columbia. Glad you and the family had a great time. Merry Christmas to you and the wife and yeah, the daughter. Talk to you in 2024. I'm so looking forward to it, man. I think 2024 is going to be a great year, and it's always a pleasure talking to you and the team at AMI. Love, so so much. love, love, love the optimism with Marco Pasqua. That's Marco Pasqua, the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Marco's out there on the West Coast, while Elizabeth Moeller's weather report is looking at the East Coast. Elizabeth, it's making its way up the Atlantic, and folks are bracing for a storm. Yes, they are. A big storm is coming to the East Coast, and unfortunately, it's going to cause some problems with power and travel. This storm is going to be similar to the one that we had a little while ago in Atlantic Canada. Normally in the East Coast, this time of the year, Dave, we're getting ready for snow this time of year, but 
Nope, this storm is going to bring a lot of rain and wind instead. Some places in the Maritimes and Newfoundland could get a lot of rain, up to 100 millimeters or more, and some strong winds, possibly up to 100 kilometers per hour. That's pretty strong. So charge those devices up because power outages might happen. You want to be prepared. There could also be some flooding because of the heavy rain and wind. We don't want Santa, though, to blow away just yet or to take flight just yet. So if you have an inflatable Santa or an inflatable anything, please secure it and make sure that it's safe. That storm is going to last until Tuesday evening. And a strong high pressure system is going to bring moisture from as far south as the Dominican Republic, which will create a long stretch of rain in the Maritimes. So again, keep those inflatable Santas on the ground. They shouldn't be taking flight until the 24th. What do you think, Dave? Uh, yeah, definitely uh, keep those skies clear for uh, Santa if you can. Hey, Elizabeth, uh, thank you for this. Have a gr Well, I'll talk to you a little bit later in the show. Absolutely. That's Elizabeth Moeller at the Weather Desk. Coming up next, the Norwegian film Christmas As Usual has claimed a spot in Netflix's top 10 global movies of the week. Amy Amanti has a review. I don't know how you say review in Norwegian. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Not everyone celebrates Christmas, and even those who do don't always celebrate Christmas in the same way. That's the premise of a new holiday movie on Netflix. Here's a clip from the trailer of Christmas as usual. Christmas in Norway is the best. Is it Yule or Yule? After a flight, a young couple drives to a snowy house. The woman tells her mom, Josh, Josh as in Joshun. Oh. Your mom seems nice. Do you think uh, she likes me? We always have medister cakes on a little, little Christmas. At a family dinner. Now we have curry. I am here for the full Norwegian Christmas experience. Oh. They go cross-country skiing. Joshun and I, we... Uh, Is it that spicy? Maybe we should give my mom a bit more time. You don't want to tell her about the engagement? I just want the timing to be right. Bad idea. Joshin holds up little Norwegian flags, builds a snowman, and is shoved by Santa. A car slides, and a Yule tree falls on it. You said you wanted the full Norwegian Christmas experience. Yeah, but that was before I knew you guys were crazy. He jumps in icy water. Okay, that is a clip from the trailer. Let's get a review of Christmas as usual from entertainment critic Amy Amanti. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Amy, not going to lie, the trailer's got me giggling a little bit. Mm -hmm. How did you think uh, the style of comedy uh, worked in this film? Well, you know, I think, you know, this this is a remake, right, of a, of a, of a Norwegian film itself. And so, you know, I was thinking about how, what Norwegians think a romantic comedy is, what versus what we in North America view as a romantic comedy. Um, and so obviously there are some differences because I wouldn't say that this is sort of laugh out loud, slapstick comedy, but there are these moments that are kind of like comic endearing, which is interesting to me. Um, they kind of make you laugh a little bit. Um, it's like, um, 
like situational comedy, Dave, which is the kind of comedy that I like. Like, I don't need anybody to make uh, jokes where, um, you know, uh, where they're, they're foul or there's a butt of a joke or they're slapstick jokes. But this is like people getting sort of just caught up in a situation that you're kind of like, oh, man, that's going to be awkward, right? That's the kind of comedy we're talking about here. So beyond the film being a remake of a Norwegian mm. romantic comedy, it's also based on a true story. How does that mm. influence the way you think about the movie? Well, I think it, 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 I think what it does is it makes it a little bit more relatable. So what you don't necessarily recognize in this particular clip um, is that, you know, there's a, a Norwegian woman who is taking her, her fiance home to meet her her family for Christmas. Um, and so Norwegian, she's a white woman. And he, Jashan, uh, who has uh, been told to her family as Josh, uh, for short, is from uh, India. So he's South Asian. Um, and she hasn't told her family this. And so, uh, so there's a clash of cultures that's happening here, right? Um, and so, of course, they meet him for the first time and they're a little bit like, what? What's going on here? So it's kind of like the the movie, uh, you know, remember the old Sidney Poitier movie, Guess Who's Coming for Dinner? It's mm -hmm, a little bit mm -hmm. like that in a way, um, which has been remade several times. Uh, but it's, so it's a little bit like that. So this, this you know, they're, they're, the situational comedy happens a little bit in this uh, culture war versus Norwegian uh, culture versus Indian culture, um, what they might do around the holidays, if they celebrate the holidays, the types of food they might eat, the different palates they might have, that kind of stuff. So when you're thinking about it being um, an actual story that's based in reality, that it's a real couple, you go into it with a little bit more sensitivity, with a little bit more heart, with a little bit more relatability, because you're like, wow, these are, this is actually the story of real people. And sometimes we don't view things with that kind of lens. Um, and then at the end of the film, it's not really giving anything away, but they capture the actors with the real, uh, with the real folks kind of doing a traditional uh, Norwegian Christmas thing together, which is a really nice moment. Um, so you, 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 they bring everybody together. And I thought that was a really nice moment to sort of complete that, you know, put the, put the bow on the top of the present, if you will, Dave. You mentioned the trailer wasn't necessarily explicit in describing mm -hmm. that clash of culture. How was the audio description in talking about that? Because you've mentioned this before, that sometimes audio description will lean towards the side of neutrality rather than truly describing different cultural backgrounds or skin colors, et cetera. Right. And you can see why in this one, it would be super important that that is necessary for us to understand that context. Right. So um, this is, again, another one that's described by Liz Gutman. Um, and so she has uh, started to do a really nice job in bringing those pieces together. Um, and so, yes, there's cultural diversity here. And it actually takes a step further in that when we get to moments where they are wearing traditional dress, um, Norwegian Christmas dress, or um, Jashan in some moments is wearing um, some traditional Indian dress. They name that dress using traditional names. Um, and so, you know, if you're watching it and you are somebody who is Norwegian or of Indian descent, you're like, yes, it's, you know, that is what these garments are referred to instead of us just saying it's, you know, using a North American tongue, right? Um, which I always feel is maybe a little bit um, unsensitive to folks from other cultures where we, you know, call something, uh, I don't know, a headscarf when that's not what it's called or whatever. 
Um, and so I might not know exactly what that is, but it's appropriate, culturally appropriate to refer to things by their proper name. I mean, if the describer has time, then they can unpack that a little bit for you um, so that you know what it is. But um, in this particular case, I thought that that was really, really nice to be able to learn what some of those things were. And so there's some moments in here, even with when we learn about some of the traditional Norwegian stuff that they're doing in terms of their holiday traditions that they're sharing with us uh, the Norwegian terms for these things, which I thought was really, really lovely Spe as the description. Speaking of Norwegian and audio description, the film is mostly in English, but occasionally Norwegian yeah. pops up. How do subtitles intersect with the audio description in this one? Yeah, so there are subtitles, of course. Um, and I think for me, I mean, obviously, I need the subtitles to be translated into English. So, you know, when we're in Norway, the family is often speaking Norwegian together. Um, and so obviously, this is happening in front of Jishan mostly. And so he's like a totally a fish out of water, right? Because somebody, you know, this family speaking a foreign language in front of him that he doesn't understand. Um, and so he's often wondering, are they talking about me? Are they talking? And many times they are talking about him. Um, but what it, unfortunately, what it leaves out for me is the ability to hear the beauty of the language because the audio description over top of it means that you can't actually hear the Norwegian because that those two things together would be really hard to listen to at the same time, right? Um, so that for me, unfortunately, it's like, oh, I'd have to watch the movie twice, once with the audio description maybe first so I understand sort of the context of what's being said at the table, that kind of stuff. And then second, like without the audio description so I could maybe hear the richness of the language, which sometimes I feel like I miss out on. Uh, but obviously I need that because otherwise I would not understand the film at all. So um, yeah, you absolutely need to have it. So it, it, it's necessary for it to be there and it does a great job, but sometimes I wish I could hear the, the actual, uh, you know, the, the actual language that these folks are speaking. So Amy, I've hit play on a couple of holiday movies over the course mm -hmm. of the last few weeks. I watched Xmas on Amazon Prime. Got a couple mm -hmm. good cackles out of it. It was okay. My cousin's movie, A Nice Palace Romance, uh, hit the Hallmark app last Thursday, and it's playing on CTV Life this Friday. A Nice Palace Romance. I'll give that one a plug again. Uh, worth checking out. Filmed in the Ottawa neck of the woods, uh, starring Joey Coleman and Marcus Rosner. Well, actually starring Marcus Rosner with an appearance from Joey Coleman. So a couple shout-outs there in terms of some holiday movies. If if someone is looking to uh, build their holiday playlist, should they hit play on Christmas as usual? I think so. I think what's nice about Christmas as usual is that it gives you some other perspectives on different uh, cultures and how they approach the holiday season, which I think is always really nice for us to kind of expand outside of what we know in our own air quotes comfort zone right um so i think that that's really important for us to sort of get a glimmer of what they do in other countries and and not just other countries dave there are folks in canada in our own backyards in our neighborhoods that are doing other things that we know nothing about right um so this maybe not maybe not be so far from home um so yeah i would it's a nice sort of endearing film it has a, a nice sort of moral of the story um you can watch it together as a family so there's some lovely lovely moments in here i would hit play on this one amy thank you for this appreciate it i would say a merry christmas slash happy holidays but i believe you and i are talking one more time this week so i don't want i don't want to i don't want to jump the gun on that one well, you can say happy holidays to me on Wednesday. Today. That's what I'll do. Amy, thank you for this. Have a nice day. You too. That's entertainment critic Amy Amanti talking to you from Vancouver, BC. You can find Christmas as usual on Netflix. In one minute, 
What did Pitchfork magazine call the top albums of 2023? Amanda Shikarchi will have that in the entertainment report. But first, public safety agencies are moving their data to the cloud. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. 82% of public safety workers say they're concerned their organization's data could be stolen or held as digital ransom. That's a 6% increase over last year, according to software company Mark 43. One decade ago, two decades ago, this is not something that police chiefs ever had to think about. Co-founder Matt Pelega says it's prompted a move from physical data storage to cloud storage systems controlled by companies like Google or Amazon. I can use the superior expertise and protocols and funding and thousands of people that Amazon is throwing at security every single day. I'd actually prefer to have my data hosted with Amazon Web Services than, you know, on the server that's plugged into my air conditioning outlet. But the report also found more than 60% of first responders still need to go to a physical location to fill out paperwork. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Over to the world of entertainment with Amanda Shikarchi. Amanda, Pitchfork Magazine, although not really a magazine anymore, it's just a website, has released their top 50 albums of 2023. Yes, this is really exciting. I love like yearly music recaps. So basically the top three from that list of the 50 are Billy Woods and Kenny Siegel Maps, Desire I Turn Into You by Caroline Polachek and SOS by SZA. But Dave, my personal favorite album this year has to be Guts by Olivia Rodrigo, just because I love her growth and maturity. What about you? Really cool uh, that there's still places like Pitchfork doing this work in music criticism. I, I just want to give Pitchfork a little bit of love here because these ratings, quite obviously, were not based on album sales other than SOS by SZA. Like, really, these are pretty uh, under-the-radar records. So super cool that Pitchfork is still around doing a lot of great music taste-making. Amanda, I'm going to dodge your question because I'll say this. I don't think I was blown away by any album in particular this year, but I wonder if that has more to do with the way that I consume music. Yes, when a new album drops, sometimes I'll give it a spin through. I'll find a couple of songs that I like, I add them to my liked playlist, or just a new playlist, and then I kind of move on from the album itself. I'll even give you an example of an upcoming album in 2024, Green Day, the pop punk band, has released a couple teaser songs, which I love. But when the album drops, after I listen to the album once or twice, I'm probably just going to stick to one or two songs that I like. And it begs this question. And musicians are going to hate this question. In the era of on-demand streaming songs, do albums still matter? As a musician myself, I definitely think that albums do matter because even though, as you said, you know, oftentimes you have the top few songs, the album is a whole story. You know, it's a chapter of someone's life, but showcased through music. So being able to play from start to finish, like every time an album comes out, what I personally like to do is I listen to the album from top to bottom and kind of be like, okay, what is the bigger story here? Because through music, it helps you understand someone and who they are and what they were going through when they were writing these songs. So I do think albums still matter. I think a lot of musicians are uh, pretty happy with your answer to that one, and I'm not going to uh, disagree with your premise. I think that's uh, pretty well put. Okay, Amanda, like I said, I, I, I don't know if I have a good answer to this question because no album really jumped out to me for good or bad this year, but 
you're a little more entrenched in this. What's the most overrated album of 2023? Okay, so <laughs> my answer might be a little bit controversial here, but okay, I will say this. I love Taylor Swift and her music, oh, but dear. I did careful, feel like careful. the re-released albums this year, I found that I still like the original versions better. Oh, dear. Just because those, as I said before, <laughs> a few months ago, those were showcasing you know, what she was really going through that I feel like there was a little bit of a disconnect between, you know, her, the re-recording and the original versions where she was actually experiencing those things. Um, So I unpacked this back in July when Speak Now came out. But yeah, I I love her. I love her music, but I feel like some of the re-recording thing. <laughs> and the Swifties are now coming for Amanda. Everyone, look out. Hey, Amanda, I believe this is the last time you and I are chatting before the holidays, so all the best to you and the Fikarchi at the Entertainment Desk coming up after the break. There's been a bit of good news on the labor front in Ontario when it comes to public elementary school teachers. I'll have that story in the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv or in audio at amiplus.ca. Don't forget, you can always catch the show on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search for Now with Dave Brown. Got to punch in a bunch of that, though, before it auto-populates. There's an Edmonton Oilers podcast that always pops up a little bit before, so... You know, get, get, get through that, drill through that, and then find Now with Dave Brown and rate, subscribe, and review. Share it with your friends, all that good stuff. It's Monday, December the 18th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, it's been slightly over 100 days since Toronto's new mayor took office. Mayor Olivia Chow is stopping by to reflect on some of the city's biggest issues, including housing and transit. And... The Beeper Mini Messenger app is experiencing some controversy. Stephen Scott will have details of the saga. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, Earthquakes Canada detected a 4.9 magnitude earthquake 137 kilometers west of Pemberton on Sunday afternoon. Seismologist John Cassidy with Natural Resources Canada says the event was felt as far away as Kelowna. Earthquakes Canada received more than 100 reports of people feeling the quake within an hour, but no reports of major damage. Y'all be seers, you're tough with that. You know how to handle a quake, not like a soft Ontarians. Speaking of Ontario, Ontario's public elementary school teachers have ratified a contract with the provincial government. Brenda Molina-Navidad has the details. 
The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario says its members voted 90% in favour of the deal, which covers four years from September 1st of 2022 to August 31st of 2026. Under the deal, compensation for the union's 80,000 teachers and occasional teachers will be referred to arbitration, as will the issue of retroactive salary increases. The agreement must also be ratified by the Ontario Public School Boards Association in order to take effect. A vote is scheduled for next week. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Thank you very much, Brenda. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. So, Brock, there's a bit of good news to share on the professional level for you. Your podcast, The Neutral Zone, is coming back. So, first and foremost, wonderful news. Congratulations. What led to the show coming back? Well, it was a thank you, first of all. It was a uh, long process uh, that I must give a lot of credit to my colleague on the Neutral Zone, Claire Buchanan, who uh, works works for our current sponsor, Ontario Parasports Network, and she did a lot of the legwork. They had had some interest in our podcast uh, before uh, this opportunity came to be, so we were excited to do this. And before we move too far down this, I just want to take the opportunity to thank everybody at AMI for their support of this program, because if it wasn't for being able to do six years on this network, we wouldn't be where we are. So I appreciate everybody and uh, all the support. And to be able to kind of sabotage my own sports report and talk a little bit about myself in the neutral zone. So so it's a new beginning when the show relaunches. How is the show going to evolve? So uh, the show is going to look much the same as what you were familiar with. Uh, it's going to have the same cast of characters, myself, Claire Buchanan, Josh Watson, and Cam Jenkins, who I very much appreciate of following me to this adventure. Uh, we are going to be shifting a little bit more focus on to uh, the Ontario side of of Parasports. We are going to still give the broader picture as we always have, but because our sponsor is the Ontario Parasports Network, one of the things that we're going to do is uh, feature more Ontario stories than uh, than maybe we did before. Before we were kind of a national, uh, you know, look at look at all things, which we're still going to do, but more of the focus will be on Ontario. The other thing that should be noted is it's going to be a podcast-only format. So we're not going to be uh, in video. We're just going to be doing the podcast, um, which is fine. The one and only Marco Flalo, who you guys are familiar with, is going to be our technical producer on this uh, venture. So we're very excited about that. Mark is a uh, wizard when it comes to technological stuff and being able to make the podcast sound good. So we're looking forward for that as well. But... Mm-hmm. The, busy, the, the, busy, the busiest man in broadcasting, Marco Flalo, whether it be his work on Access Tech Live or his work behind the scenes on podcasts, Marco Flalo knows how to uh, stay busy. No doubt about that one. So, Brock, you mentioned the show is going to be a little bit more Ontario-centric. Where does that leave your relationship with the Canadian Paralympic Committee? Uh, we, the, the Canadian Paralympic Committee and I have had a very deep relationship for a long time. Obviously, I was a Paralympic athlete, and so I'm very familiar with them, and, and they are very familiar with me. They are still a supporter of the program. They are going to be helping me provide uh, 
guests to the program and feature stories. And I think the the relationship we have with the Canadian Paralympic Committee is one that I am, uh, you know, grateful for. We've had uh, Chief Officer Karen O'Neill from the Canadian Paralympic Committee join us a few times. She will be making a return in uh, early January. And we just, without them, we wouldn't be able to, you know, forecast the national story as much as we are. And they're very willing and their athletes are very willing uh, to come and join us. And I think part of that, again, we go back to talking about what AMI has done for us. Part of that is due to the fact that I got to do some interviews at the summit. And I think that that itself grew our relationship because we got to sit down with athletes and we got to talk in depth to them. And they really have appreciated our program on a deeper level because of that situation. So our relationship is very deep with the Canadian Paralympic Committee and one we value so very much. So, Brock, I'm going to pull up the calendar app on my cell phone. Uh, when does the show officially relaunch? I cannot give you an official date, but I can tell you January 2024. All right. Uh, it's coming very soon. I'm hoping that this week I'll be able to give a definitive uh, answer on this, but follow me at NeutralZoneBR, at NeutralZoneCamJ, at CB Buchanan, and at JWatson200 on X, and it will be posted once we know. Very good. All right, Brock, let's turn to the broader world of sports, although the broadcasting side of the broader world of sports. There was an interesting broadcast choice during the Houston Texans-Tennessee Titans football game. Titans quarterback Will Levis went down with what looked like a serious injury during overtime. The broadcast chose not to replay the hit. This is happening more frequently during NFL broadcasts. It happened during a Monday night football game earlier this year when Cleveland Browns running back Nick Chubb uh, broke his leg in a brutal, brutal, brutal manner. But Brock, I'm curious how you feel about broadcasts becoming more reluctant to show replays of injuries. I have some thoughts on this, but I want to give you the first crack. So I, I have it's it's twofold because first of all, as a person who is visually impaired and has some challenges, you know, uh, taking in sports when it comes to a visual perspective, I want to see the replay because maybe it happened so fast in in real time that you're just like, what 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 happened? And then they don't show it. So yes, there's a part of me that says, man, I wish they showed it. Not so much because I want to see the gruesomeness over and over again, but it's because maybe some of us missed it. Then there's the other side, though, Dave, where I look and say, yeah, but if they show it over and over and over and over again, you're kind of um, making a, um, you're showing it too much where the person is literally going through pain and discomfort and et cetera. So you can overshow it, but I do think you can undershow it. And I don't, and I think not showing it one more time, even twice, is a bit too little. I think they could show it maybe once more, twice more for those of us that missed it, as I said. But I do understand the idea that maybe for the person's well-being and just not to make a, a mockery of the situation and say, well, let's just show that, you know, gruesome hit once more and more and more. I do get it from two sides. Yeah, instead, let's cut away to a Burger King commercial because that's that's yeah. not gratuitous, gratuitous, gratuitous at all either. Brock, I, 
I'm, I'm inclined to sort of sit in your balanced position that you've taken there, but I'll say this. One of the worst things a broadcaster can do is treat the audience like children. And I think when you start making the choice of being, oh, this is too dangerous for your poor eyes, brains, and hearts to understand, you're really treating the audience like children. And I acknowledge, maybe you don't wanna show it nine or 10 or 12 times, but I am watching football. I know football actively shortens the lives of its participants. I understand there's danger on every play, head trauma, body trauma, etc. Unless the bone is popping out in the shot, show me the replay at least a couple times. Maybe give me a content warning. Be like, hey, if you got a squeamish stomach, turn away for the next 20 or 30 seconds. But I believe as a broadcaster, you have a responsibility to show what happened during the game. And injuries are part of the game. And what I really wonder, Brock, if I put on conspiratorial Dave hat, how much of this is the NFL saying, ooh, gotta sanitize the, the, gotta sanitize the product, gotta sanitize the sport, make sure people don't know how dangerous it is. We don't wanna show that. That's not up to the broadcaster to like follow the NFL's marching order on that. It's up to the broadcaster to be like, we are an institution of quasi-journalism. We need to show what happened. And again, I agree with you. Probably stop around one or two replays, maybe three replays, and then leave it at that. But treat me like an adult as a viewer. Yeah, and I, and I think, too, the other part of this is when you see it in fast motion, you don't really have, a, and I'm going to use this word because I can't, Think of another one. You don't really have an appreciation for what really took place. You don't really have an understanding for what happened. And so slowing it down maybe can make people understand, oh my, that's why he's 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 down for a while, because it really, it really happened. And it really but sometimes in fast motion, you can really truly miss and just chalk it up as oh, he was just hit an, an, another normal NFL play. Well, no, that's not entirely true, but yeah, I, I just I think for me personally, as a as a person who, who takes it in, I feel like I miss the initial thing because it happens so fast. Yeah, hundred percent. And I should note, from a perspective of uh, keeping folks up to date, Will Levis did walk off the field, so uh, there were suspect suspicions of oh my gosh, a broken ankle, a broken leg. Walked off the field, uh, questionable as to whether he'll play next week, but uh, overall not as serious as the broadcast made it out to be in those initial moments. Hey, Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. You as well. That's Brock Richardson, the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up next, the Beeper Mini Messenger app is wrapped up in some controversy. Stephen Scott has details on the saga. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, turning to the world of technology. Beeper Mini is an Android app that allows users to send and receive iMessages without needing an Apple device or Apple ID. 
the developer behind the app relaunched it earlier this month, and this has caused some controversy. Stephen Scott has details on the saga. Stephen is one of the hosts of Double Tap on AMI-audio. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Dave. How are you today? Feeling better? Stephen, I'm feeling much better. Almost back to a million bucks over here, but uh, still a little bit of loose change uh, dingling and dangling around. So what's the core reason for this dispute? It's an interesting one, right? Because the whole thing here is that what app, what well, Android or, or these this makers of this app, Beeper Mini, have done, have really tried to replicate the iMessage system within Android. So what they've done is they've managed to find a way of connecting to the Apple system that actually allows for iMessage to work and then allow their users to be able to get access to the iMessage system without the need to use an iPhone, which of course is the main way to use it. There is no official way at the moment to use iMessage on an Android phone, so this is a third-party solution. So these are guys who originally, way back in the early days of this, actually set up a computer, just literally a Mac, sitting there controlling the iMessage ins and outs, so basically being like the Apple account for all of its users. Wow. And then feeding users data through that system to the app. Now, of course, you can imagine the issues there because all your data is essentially going through some guy's computer yeah. sitting in a <laughs> house somewhere. And that's how it began. Now, of course, things have moved on a little bit. This new version have actually allowed that these developers have actually been enabled to connect directly to the iMessage servers. I'm not entirely sure how that's possible, but it's needless to say, Apple aren't very happy about it. Yeah, Apple loves to, I don't know how you want to phrase this, they love to build a moat or a wall around their ecosystem, yep. and they do not like it when Android users like me infiltrate their system in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so what's been Apple's response to the existence of the Beeper Mini Messenger app? Well, it's been the same response as it was back in the original day when the first app came out, the cloud version of it, which ran through that that guy's computer. I mean, as ridiculous as that sounds, that's exactly how it worked. Um they want to shut it down. They want to stop this from working. So at every single turn, the Beeper Mini people, they keep trying to get back in. They keep trying to open it back up. They keep finding another way to open it up so that their users can actually uh, get access to the system again. And Apple block them at every single <laughs> turn. And they've made it very clear that that is something they will continue to do. The Beeper Mini people say, we are going to continue to try and exploit this so that people can access this feature. It's a really interesting uh, debate because, of course, this is all because of the green versus blue bubble debate, which goes on and on. And, and actually, although we kind of joke around the whole green and blue bubble thing that has been a source of conversation for a long time and kind of makes people laugh, you know, I've heard stories of people saying they go on dates and then when they find out that their partner you know, their or would-be partner has, you know, an Android phone. They want to leave the restaurant as soon as possible. You know, it's like, you're, I don't want to You're going to ruin every group chat that I'm in with your green bubbles. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so funny, right? But actually, you lose access to other things as well because the inability, for example, between an iPhone user and an Android user to send high-res images and videos, uh, get those red receipts that we all like to get, send those emojis and stickers and all the fun stuff that goes along with messaging these days, all of that's not really possible at the moment. This will be resolved in the coming year, though, 
because we're going to see uh, the adoption of what is called RCS, Rich Communication System. This is the way for, uh, essentially for Android and Apple to play nice together and get rid of this whole green and blue bubble nonsense. That will come in later this year, apparently. It's something that Apple has to adopt in order for that to be possible. But iMessage being available on Android officially, that is not something that Tim Cook or anyone else is keen to see happen. Yeah, it's interesting the way in which iMessage really does present a perk to its user. You've talked about this on the show before, that it's not just, oh, my cell phone and my group chat is all a beautiful blue bubble. It's that there's a great interconnectivity between your different Apple devices if you're an iMessage user. Someone can get you on your desktop or your tablet or your phone. I love that feature. I mean, I love the integration across the whole thing. In a way, it's what ties you into the system. You can't break free from it. I, I'd love to know what life is like on the Android side, Dave. Maybe one day you can tell me, oh, we I, get you on the show, you can tell me how wonderful it is on the other side of that fence. It's it's not that wonderful. And, and specifically, I'll, <laughs> and, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll put this even more specifically for you, Stephen, because it's not even as if there's some kind of uh, a greater Android messaging system. What it is, is it's phone to phone. So, for example, if I'm texting with someone who has a Samsung phone, it's, it behaves almost like iMessenger. But if I'm talking to someone who has a, a Google phone, uh, what are they called, the Pixel phones, then, yeah. th then it, it's just like a regular text message. So, so, so even, even within the Android system itself, the ecosystem, there's still a lot of closing of, of uh, there's still a lot of closing of individual ecosystems. The way I often think about it is if Android is great for those people who want to explore, who want to try new things, who love customization, who can change lots of different things about their phone, can add lots of different apps, you know, can even sideload their own content on there if they want to. But as iPhone is very much locked down, there is a little bit more customization than you used to be able to do. And that integration with other devices, like you say, I can you know start a, a, an iMessage conversation on my Mac in front of me here, and I can continue that iMessage conversation on my phone. I can answer a FaceTime call, make a FaceTime call, make a call on my Mac and do the same, uh, continue that on to my device. I can continue it to my HomePod, where I can just literally hold my phone over my HomePod and the call will seamlessly transfer over. It's that integration that a lot of people like. And I do. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a fantastic thing. I'm a Mac user. I'm an iPhone user. I mean, for me, my favorite thing about the Mac connectivity is what is called universal cut and copy and paste, which is so simple, but literally I can have something appear on my phone and I can say, hey, I want to get that image into that email and I just literally hold on the image, select copy on the phone and then go to my Mac and hit paste and there is the image. Oh, I like that. So, you know, it's, it's those simple things but it, it, and it's seamless. So, you know, it's great and you know I'll always talk up the Apple side. On this one, I have to say I am on Apple's side because I think that this is something that is an Apple system. It's something they've built. And, you know, we've kind of talked a lot of ridiculous analogies in the show around this. You know, we're kind of using the house analogy, like Apple didn't just put the security system in here. They built the house as well. And now someone else is banging at the door trying to find a way in and they found a way in. Who should we be rooting for, the burglar or <laughs> the guy who built the house and the security system?
Hmm. Yeah, it's it's to me because it's a third party. And again, I'm sure there's lawyers involved here, so I'll pick my words a little carefully. To me, when a third party's involved, that's when I'm pretty leery about handing over uh, the keys to my device, right? If this was yeah. a deal that was struck between Apple and Google and Samsung and Nokia and Motorola and like name your other million phones that run on the Android operating system, that's different. But when you're talking about a third party, that's where I get a little bit leery about sort of agreeing to the terms and conditions and then installing something on my phone. And this wasn't free either. It's important to say this was a subscription. It is a subscription app. You get a seven-day free trial, and then it's $3 a month after that. So you, you have to pay for the privilege of this. Now, I kind of understand why, right? You've got a, a small team of developers who want to be paid to do what they do, and I think that's quite right as well. However, um, I think we have to be, you know, you're being very careful with your words, and I think you're right to be. I also see a lot of nonsense flying around here, talk of fake credentials being used to be able to enable iMessage users to get in. You know, at the end of the day, what you're dealing with here is essentially almost like a ghost-type device, because your phone, if you've got an Android phone, is not an, an Apple iPhone, but it is able to access through this service Without actually getting into too much of the weeds on this, it doesn't really impact on the service. You're not connecting in a nefarious way, not in the way they've found to do it. In a way, I think what they've done, what they've actually done here is find a way to use this service. And Apple themselves kind of wish they'd known this first. Um, because I think this is something that it's, it's one of those things when you find out like a kid has hacked into the Pentagon, right? And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. don't don't throw the kid in jail, hire him. You know, how did he do this? Um, I'd want to know, <laughs> right? I want to know how he did it because I want him on my team, right? Yeah, it's like when Zuckerberg hacked into uh, hacked into the Harvard servers. He uh, asked yeah. for a reward, not a suspension. Uh, Stephen, let, let's wrap up on this thought, though. Can we all just move our group chats to WhatsApp, though? Can we all just download WhatsApp and just do our group chats there and then get rid of this green and blue bubble gang business? Well, this is kind of what my friends and I have done because, you know, aside anything else, voice messaging, which is something I do a lot of um, because I just I find it easier to do that than type sometimes, I have much prefer WhatsApp. iMessage is terrible for this. The the adoption of voice messaging inside the, uh, the this whole ecosystem is not great. Uh, so for me, I'm with you. I think WhatsApp is just amazing. Now, what I love most about WhatsApp is it's across different devices as well. So you could have a PC with WhatsApp on there. And I have to tell you, if you've got the PC, if you go to the Microsoft Store, if you've ever wanted to do this, go to the Microsoft Store, download the official WhatsApp app, and then from your phone, you can link your device and you'll be able to continue that conversation. Super accessible with all the screen readers as well. So with JAWS, oh, like they that. have built-in commands. Uh, NVDA has a, a script called WhatsApp Plus that you can download from the add-on store. Uh, and, you know, of course, it'll work with Narrator. And on the Mac side, you've got a reasonably decent, with a few kinks in it, version of WhatsApp on the Mac. But ultimately, you can have a cross-device. And, of course, let's not forget Chromebooks. We always forget Chromebooks, but, yeah, yeah Chromebooks no. can access it too. <laughs> so, you know, want... you can literally get messaging across the devices. It's brilliant. Never want to forget our friends with the uh, Chromebooks. And, you know, Stephen, a little kink never hurt anybody. Stephen, have a great Absolutely day. Uh, happy holidays, buddy. I like to leave on that one. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Happy holidays. You just, yeah, you just move on as fast as you can after I make that joke. Don't want to dwell. <laughs> Don't want to get too tied up in that one. That's Stephen 
Scott. Hey. He's, he's one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show at noon Eastern on AMI-audio, one of my personal favorites. You can also follow the Double Tap team on Twitter at Double Tap On Air, at Double Tap On Air. Coming up after the break, dip enters, or like you call them in the rest of the country, convenience stores in Ontario are going to be selling beer and wine and some cocktails in the near future. Elizabeth Moeller is bringing that news story to the round table. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Nazreen Abdel-Majid is standing by. Elizabeth Moeller, a news story about selling beer at Ontario convenience stores caught your attention this morning. Yes, it certainly did. So starting in 2026, so still a while away, Ontarians will be able to buy beer and wine and seltzers at convenience stores. And this will mark a major increase in where alcohol is sold in our fine province. And we will be the third jurisdiction to offer beer at convenience stores as well as ready-made cocktails. So, Dave, I want to chat about this. What are your views towards Ontario selling alcohol at convenience stores? It is about darn time. I grew up in Quebec where the dip and culture reigns supreme, where buying beer at a corner store was no big deal. And to this day, I still find it so weird that you can't do that in Ontario. Now, super cool that a couple of years ago, you could start buying beer and wine at grocery stores. That was a nice first step. But convenience stores are the next frontier. And I am delighted, delighted to see the province is finally doing this. And I'll tell you why. It's not just about consumer convenience, but definitely consumer convenience is part of this. It's good for the business. It brings more business into that place. And I'll also say it probably reduces the possibility of driving under the influence because people don't need to drive to get their liquor. They can go get liquor where they're going, which just makes so much sense to me. Nazreen, what do you think? That is a very, very good point, Dave. I didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of how convenient it would be at convenience stores and they wouldn't have to drive. You don't have to worry about reckless driving. Um, so I, I I do feel like there is no difference to me personally because I feel like I see LCBO in every corner. <laughs> but that's just <laughs> my personal I'm well, for uh, you then. Yeah, as as an actual as an actual drinker in Nazarene, I'll tell you that's not the case. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I'm like, wow, I want to live where she lives. (laughs) Yeah. As a, as a non-drinker, I do feel like I see LCBO in every corner, which is, which is funny. I I see that a lot in Mississauga. I saw it a lot in Guelph, but again, that's just my view as a non-drinker. So personally, I'm not looking for any drinks. So, uh, to anybody else, they would, they would find this very convenient, very helpful. Uh, I don't, know how it would be for a lot of like younger uh adults um i wouldn't say younger adults like teenagers um you know using it as like a fake using fake ids would it be more convenient so 
that's a that's a difficult topic to go through. Well, um, no, I, I, but... Nizreen, I'm glad you raised that because that's going to come up. That's going to be part of the news cycle and the conversation since this announcement late last week. I'll I'll counter that with one reality. Convenience stores in Ontario are already selling cigarettes. So if we're trusting convenience stores to check IDs in regard to selling cigarettes, then we should trust them enough to check IDs on selling alcohol. Convincing enough. I, I, as you can tell, I've thought about this quite a bit. <laughs> you, Elizabeth, you did. <laughs> Elizabeth, it's so far it's been all me and Nazreen. What do you think about this decision? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that the concerns around regulations, like you said, we're sell, we sell lottery tickets in convenience stores and, and ideas checked. We sell cigarettes. Um, you Pornography. Know, so I think, yes, that's another one. So I think... Absolutely, that's going to come into the regulations. But I also think, too, that there has been some discourse around, like, is it going to be a cause more societal problems or is there going to be an issue with having beer right next to the potato chips? And really, when we look at studies from other countries, that, that isn't the case. Like, we're not seeing that that alcohol use is spiking hugely. I do, I do want to just have a nod because there has been lots of legislation from Health Canada around the harms of drinking. But I think that that legislation and the harms of drinking exist no matter where we buy the alcohol. So I, right. I've, I've read I've read quite a number of sort of debates on this issue to kind of come prepared for today. And I'm like, okay, but those harms from alcohol exist no matter what. And I also think that, you know, like uh, many of the grocery stores that sell alcohol, they do have restrictions on hours. They have restrictions on how much can be sold. And the staff are going to get that same kind of regulation training that they have already in the grocery stores. If I go to Metro at 2 a.m., the wine, the wine, not that I'm going there, but the wine shop is not open. So um, you know, those kinds of things will will come into effect. Mm -hmm. But I hear I do hear those concerns and I wanna I wanna give a nod to some of the real societal implications oh. of, of drinking because yeah. that's yeah, yeah. Anyway, I feel like you would want to jump in, Dave. So no, 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 Elizabeth, I'm glad you mentioned that too, right? Because it's important to note that yes, alcohol consumption can be a big societal problem. And there are those Health Canada guidelines that were updated earlier this year saying two to three drinks a week, which I know uh caused quite an uproar uh earlier in the year. And certainly people who are actively going through recovery. This has definitely come up a little bit with the more legalization of gambling in the last couple of years, saying they're feeling very bombarded by how much how much uh, gambling is sort of around them and certainly a greater presence of alcohol where you might buy a carton of milk or a bag of potato chips is going to influence individuals. But we can't simply govern our society because people are going through active recovery because people are going through active recovery for a lot of different things. And if you're going yeah. to already have alcohol in the grocery store, then you have to at least be willing to say, well, if it's there, a grocery store is even more of a necessity than a dip and or, or a convenience store. So I, I I'm glad you flagged that. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's worth mentioning both the health consequences and some of the societal consequences that go hand in hand with drinking. But that is going to exist no matter which way you slice the pie. Here's my follow up question to both of you, because one of the reasons why the legislation or the policy change is not going to take effect until 2026 is this is going to involve businesses making some uh, changes to their layouts of their store, maybe needing more refrigeration space, doing some licensing, getting up to some health standards, there's going to be a lot of change over the course of the next couple of years in regards to making those preparations. So that's why there's a little bit of a delay on this one, a little bit of, which is fine by me. But Elizabeth, would you ever open a convenience store or dip in her? Would you ever open that kind of business? You know what? 
I would say yes. Um, and the reason is that there's lots of neighborhoods, um, especially in Toronto, where we have like food deserts where there's no, like even in my neighborhood, the closest grocery store is about a kilometer away. Now that's not a huge deal, but those convenience stores can can fill that gap, whether it's just a bag of milk or whether you do want to, you know, go out and grab a bottle of wine. So I would say yes, but I would think carefully about, you know, my demographics and my geographies, I guess my geographics. And I would also think about what is my convenience store going to, is there going to be kind of a special thing that I sell? So some convenience stores, for example, sell a whole host of flowers outside. So it's, it's, yes. you can go in and get whatever you need. Right. But then you can, if you forget that gift, which I've never been guilty of doing, you can pop out with a plant. So I would want to make sure that if I open a convenience store, I'm doing something that's kind of, um, new and novel, maybe a coffee canteen area, but not like the gross, like instant coffee, but actually like nice coffee canteen yeah. area. Yeah. So yeah, for me, yes. But the caveat of it would have to have something that that's um, unique and sort of fills that need or gap. Yeah. I love that. Almost like a food mart, not, not, not yeah. just a dip in her, but a food mart. Um, as you can tell, I keep using the word dip in her here and that's for yeah, a I'm reason. Yeah, that up. It's they, not well, what I know. <laughs> well, that, well, that's, that's what we call a convenience store in Quebec. It's a dip in her. Ah, so okay. if I, uh, so first of all, num number one, 100%, yes, I would love to open a dip in her one day, a convenience store. And Dave's listen, dip in her. There no, you go. no, 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 Elizabeth, you messed up my joke. The, okay. the Dave Penner, the Dave Penner. You got to oh. simplify it. You got to simplify the language here. The Dave Penner, and especially with uh, the possibility of selling wine and beer, like now we're really, now like we're really getting somewhere. And, uh, you know, maybe I open my laundromat next to it and uh, have a little food truck outside. Maybe do a little bodega thing like in New York. I think, I think we can get somewhere. Nazreen, would you ever open a convenience store or dip in her? Is that the kind of business you would open? I'd have to agree with Elizabeth. A location is very important. Um, so around my area, there's a lot of convenience stores, but I love the ones with the espresso, uh, espresso, espresso bar with the coffee. I am obsessed with those. So I feel like it's very convenient on the go. I mean, sometimes I don't want to stop by uh, Tim Hortons or any other coffee shops. Uh, it's the hassle sometimes when you want to grab a candy bar. Yes, I'm addicted. So I feel like even if I did own a convenience <laughs> store, it's not going to be very beneficial to me. I'm going to be in the aisle, uh, in the chips aisle and the candy aisle in the, in the Coke aisle. You, you're going to, you're going to see me eating more than I sell. You're going to be, so... you're going to be getting high on your own supply, so to speak exactly. on that one. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think it does matter here that not all convenience stores are created equal. Not all, all are the same. Elizabeth sort of was offering some of those distinctions. When you get into downtown Toronto, there's flower stores or there's little coffee shops. There's little things that separate them, but I'll say this, Elizabeth, a convenience store that's not corporate can very much be part of the fabric of a neighborhood. I think about this huge dip in her that used to exist in the St. Henry neighborhood in Montreal on St. Antoine Street called Claude Claudette. And it was super, super part of the neighborhood fabric that pretty much if you wanted to do anything or go anywhere on any given morning, you could just pop by Claude Claudette and like do what you needed to do. I like I just think a great convenience store is more than just a place to buy chips or a, or a bottle mm -hmm. of beer or a bottle of wine. I think that it's actually independent business that like thrives at the heart of the community.
Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'll keep it brief just in case uh, we're short on time. But when I when we're I not. moved to my when I, when I moved to my neighborhood years and years ago, I actually got locked out, and it was the convenience store I went to in the local neighborhood that let me sit down, have a sandwich, call the locksmith. So you know, just to speak to your point, I think that's a really beautiful way that that convenience store sort of shows that they care about people in the neighborhood and their well being. Nazreen, you mentioned that you're encountering a lot of uh, convenience stores in your neck of the woods now that you're back in Mississauga. What do you make mm -hmm. of my assertion that they become part of the community fabric? I, I know Mississauga is a little bit different than, say, downtown Toronto or downtown Montreal or downtown adjacent, but how would you describe the, the convenience store culture that exists in Mississauga? They do know their customers. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're regular customers, I'd have to say. So I love that about convenience stores you know there's small businesses so they know their community they know who's going to come in and out um i love how much it provides like I, i've never seen a flower shop outside of a convenience store so i'm really interested in that elizabeth because i feel like that would be convenient here yeah. i always think to bring flowers somewhere and i always forget totally uh so and I want to hint at my husband for getting me. So yeah, so I, I do feel like there's a lot in my area just because there's a lot of schools. Um, it's it's one of those neighborhoods that um, people have been living here for so long. So uh, it, it's nice to have those types of stores with, you know, with culture, with community, like you, you know, you can relate to that person yeah. that's working behind the counter. It's part of the we tapestry. Have, we have, we have long conversations. Oh we yeah, we have long conversations, and I love that. It's I love that part of the tapestry for sure. Hey Elizabeth, thank you for this. Nizreen, thank you as well. That's Elizabeth Moeller and Nizreen Abdel Majid. No Ramya on the show today, but. Kelly and Ramya is still hitting the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv, so make sure to catch up with that one. Coming up after the break, Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow will reflect on some of the biggest issues in the city, including housing and transit. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's been a few months since Olivia Chow took office as the mayor of Toronto. It's the biggest city in Canada and certainly presents us some challenges that are unique to Toronto, but not necessarily ununique. I'm inventing words there for the rest of the country, and I'm beyond delighted to welcome Mayor Olivia Chow to the show to talk about some of the issues facing the city. Good morning, Mayor Chow. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me this morning. Good morning. Mayor Chow, I would like to start this conversation in a time machine. If we flashed back 12 months ago, could you ever have imagined that you'd be chatting with me this morning as the mayor of Canada's biggest city? Oh, gosh, what a great question, Dave. Not at all. I might be chatting with you on other issues, but probably as uh, ordinary citizens of Toronto, teaching people how to get politically connected to the city and to different levels of government, but certainly not as the mayor of Toronto. 
Here I am, though. <laughs> and it's uh, it was quite the turn of events, and I'm so glad we get a chance to talk today because there are a lot of issues that are pressing in Toronto, but that also connect to the rest of the country as well. And one of those is housing affordability, and that's become one of your central focuses since you took over. What led you to prioritize the issue as a top concern? Well, housing needs cut across every aspect of our life. And if housing is not affordable, then it makes it really difficult for people to have a good standard of living. And you can people get anxious if they get evicted. People get anxious if they think they might get evicted. People get anxious if they are worried about not being able to pay the mortgage. People get anxious because if they get laid off or something happens, if they get sick, then they might not be able to pay the next month rent and then what's going to happen to them. So building good housing, a lot of it quickly and a good percentage of it affordable mm. is my top priority because it, it doesn't matter who you are. And we know that one out of 10 people go to food banks. Why? Because the rent, by the time they finish paying rent, is they can't afford much afterwards, even if they're working. So housing has to be a top priority for all levels of government. Mayor Chow, I like the way that you put that, because it's not just simply someone in a low-income bracket or someone who's strictly working class who's dealing with the housing affordability crisis. It's pretty much everybody in the city at this point, and it's pretty much everybody in the province and across the country with the way housing prices are going. So what kind of strategies do you want to put into place to start mitigating the affordability issue? Well, um, housing is... Uh... Uh, as you, as I said, touches every aspect of our lives. But um, that's why I have a blueprint that we have put together that identified all the city of Toronto sites that we could make available to build rent-controlled uh, rental housing. We plan to uh, built 65,000 units of rent-controlled homes, a mix of rent gear to income, below market, market rentals, uh, and it will be done through uh, the publicly developed housing. It could be nonprofit. And um, we have put aside some money into a reserve fund so that we could buy some of the housing that might be uh, some apartments or, or some buildings that might be up for sale so we can make them affordable so people won't be so anxious about being evicted. And hopefully sometime this week, we will get a final approval for the housing accelerator funds from the federal government because we got we, we locked down the provincial government money, but that's only if we could uh, also get some federal money. Mm. That would be really, uh, really helpful. Yeah, the, the, the Prime Minister has been on that tour. He was in Vancouver on Friday making a similar announcement. So certainly uh, certainly, some good news this week would go a long way. Uh, Mayor Chow, what, what are the unique challenges that Toronto presents in regards to housing? Because to my brain, I feel like density has got to be a big one right there. 
absolutely. <laughs> Good brain. Uh, you got it. Yep. Uh, because there are lots of buildings right now that are really short. Um, and we could build, especially along transit hub, we could build much higher buildings. And um, we could also... Um, unleash some of the homeowners if they want to um, renovate their homes into four units and four stories kind of building, um, including the basement, we could do that. So higher densities means that we could uh, create a lot more housing a lot faster, especially around the transit corridor like subway stations and LRT stations. Mm. Speaking of transit, there's only about two and a half minutes left uh, before we hit the uh, network hard out here. But what do you see as the future for public transit in the city? Because it has its ups and it has its downs, but I'm curious, I'm curious what kind of imprint you'd like to make on the TTC and public transit in the city over the course of the next few years. Well, it needs to be reliable, fast, and safe and accessible. Uh, so uh, we need new subway cars. Uh, when I first came on, I immediately increased the services because there was a fair increase. I don't know whether you remember in service cuts, which means that's a double whammy. Mm. So we said, no, 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 no. It's, let's increase the service back to the pre-pandemic level, which by and large we've done. Not perfect yet. And let's buy some... Um, new subway cars so that it's accessible so it, it's um uh because the old one are on blue street is is uh the lifespan is ending. We also need to make sure that every stations are accessible. Um, so there are lots to do, and um, that's our plan. Um, we are going to make um, accessible station from 54 stations to 70 stations. And uh, that's um, that that is something that I'm committed to. One more question here in regards to public transit, going back to the uniqueness of Toronto as the country's biggest city that's also surrounded by some of the country's biggest suburbs that don't fall under the city's jurisdiction. How challenging is that for you and your colleagues to build a system that kind of speaks to each other and works in integration? You're talking about myself, uh, our cities, and all the cities across yeah, Canada. Well, all the, all, but, yeah. even, but even the cities, even the cities around Toronto, right? The suburbs that are gargantuan, but that operate under their own jurisdiction. Well, uh, I'm part of. I'm an active member. I'm in a WhatsApp group of um, uh, the Big City Mayor Caucus in Ontario. We just met on Friday, and one of the things we are saying is that we're asking the federal government to help us with the refugees funding, because as you know, there's a lot of refugees coming into not just Toronto, but all across the GTA, and we're looking for uh, support. Uh, we meet quite regularly, um, this Big City Mayor Caucus, and we work very closely together, so on issues of fairness, on housing, on public public transit, um, public services, uh, you name it, we work together. So very, very good working relationship because sometimes you can't tell, you just 
coming through from Mississauga to Toronto, you know? It's yeah. just, uh, it's the Etobicoke Creek. Yeah, it's a bit, of, it's a bit of an invisible line, but all of a sudden the it whole is. operation changes. changes. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the difference is that because of the New Deal, we have now uploaded uh, the Garner because the Garner is you're driving from Mississauga to Toronto. Right. All of a sudden, the lost of the city. Oh, that doesn't make sense. Oh, my gosh. Hey, Mayor Chow, I was so grateful to chat with you this morning. Congratulations on your political success and best of luck with these initiatives over the course of the next year. Thank you, Dave. I look forward to coming back and oh. uh, rejoining. Hopefully we have more conversation together so I could learn more from your, oh. your team. I'd love that. I would love that. That is Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow. That's all the time there is for the show today until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.